you can sit on the front bench somewhere, we'll uh, have a little chat up front with you a little bit. two stories, and one has to do with a cat, and one has to do with a duck, and they all have to do with, uh, with us, okay? So we're going to tell these stories. I want to talk about something else here real quick first. Um, how many of you have a heart? All of us have one, right? You know you have a different kind of heart that the Bible talks about that isn't the one that's beating in your chest. It's actually like our soul. It's where our our thoughts come from, the Bible talks about that. In fact, there's a verse that says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And what that means to me is, we need to be very careful what goes into our heart, because that makes a big difference what comes out of our life. And so, everything we do comes out of our heart. Jesus said that when we say things and do things, it becomes our heart is thinking in a certain way, and, and so we need to be very careful with it, make sure it doesn't get bad things into it, so bad things don't come out of it. And, uh, you know, if we have a good heart, good things come out. A good heart makes us say, Mom, can I help you do the dishes? A good heart says, I can be kind to my sister and my brother. A good heart likes to do good things. A bad heart, well, does other things, right? Things that we shouldn't recommend. But I want to tell you this, this little story and uh, sort of illustrate that point. So when we lived in Guatemala years ago, we lived in a, in a house that had a well outside, so there wasn't electricity at first, and so we had to turn a generator on. After a while, there was an electric to pump the water out of the well. And the water got pumped out of the well through a pipe, back to the back of the house, up on the roof sort of was a big water tank. And that's where the water would fill up, and if we needed water inside, we'd turn the spigot on, and the water would run down out of the tank. And it would we could use water to wash our hands and brush our teeth and things like that. And so we've used that system quite a while and it worked very well. The well was out front and just a big hole dug deep in the ground and with some bricks up around it to make it a little higher than the level of the ground. It had a cover on top so uh, to keep it safe, to keep dirt out of it and stuff. Well, one day when we started using it like to wash our hands with soap and smell your hands and they didn't really smell like soap. Something a little funny about the water. You brush your teeth and it doesn't quite taste like it used to. When you wash clothes with it or wash the dishes with it. Something is wrong with the water. And so, where do you start checking when something's wrong with the water? You could check the pipes. Pipes are fine. Go back to the big tank on the roof of the house and that seems fine. So, went out to the well and took the cover off. And guess what was in the well? It was a dead cat. Oh. And I'm not sure how long the cat has been there, but it was long enough to become, well, let's say not fresh anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so we quickly got the cat out of the well, and so you get, get, got that out at least. And then we poured like, gallons of Clorox down there to try to help kill the germs, and we just turned the water on and let it run and run until all the bad water came out, and after a long time, we felt like we could maybe use it again. But it wasn't a very 
a pretty time to uh, to go through, but we did, and we uh, we figured it out. See, the, the well had a door, and the cat got through the door. And I'm not sure if somebody threw it in the well just to be mean, or if it got in there by accident and died in the well. But the result was the same anyway. See, if we would have found it and got it out right away, it wouldn't have been much problem. But because it stayed there and stayed there and stayed there and started rotting in there, uh, that became a problem. Now here's a question for you. How many doors does your heart have? Do you ever think about that? Your heart has some doors. You're thinking, I can tell. One of the doors to your heart is your eyes. You see, what you see uh, becomes what you think about. What you think about becomes what you end up doing. And so that's one door we've got to watch for your book, isn't it? You know, there's some things you see that are very good. You can read good books, you can look at good things, good pictures, and they feed your mind good things. But maybe you're at the doctor's office and the television is on, and maybe you see a bad picture in the grocery store, and, and it does something different. It goes inside there, and, and, and it's not a good thing. It can stay in there and make a problem. Your ears are a door, what you hear. And uh, there's a lot of good things you can hear. You should feed yourself good things through your ears, good music. Uh, good books, good conversations, good advice, and listen to that, and it can make a difference in your heart. But then there's bad things too. If you let them go in there, uh, there will be a problem. So doors are good things. The door on the well is a good thing. It's supposed to keep bad things out. A door on your house is a good thing. It's to let good things in and keep bad things out. And that's what you're, you're supposed to do with our doors, with our eyes and our ears, is let the good things in and let the bad things out. So we need to take care of that and, and, and use them well. Now, there's one more story I want to tell you. And uh, this sort of teaches the same lesson, but a little bit different way. And uh, I've always enjoyed the story. I heard it one time when I was in Guatemala years and years ago. And I uh, never forgot it. So maybe you've heard it before. I think it's been around here, too. But so there was a little boy and a little girl, their brother and sister. And they're staying at their grandparents' place for a couple of weeks. And one day they were down by the pond playing, and the little boy was seeing how far he could throw stones across the pond. He could throw them pretty far. And so out in the pond were some ducks, her grandmother's ducks, and on the shore. And this boy picked up a stone and threw it as hard as he could go. Guess where the stone went? The stone hit the duck. And the duck died. And the little boy and little girl ran to the duck and looked at the duck. The duck is dead. They looked at the house. Grandma's not looking. And they take the duck into the bushes and cover it up. Put some leaves on it, put some rocks on it, put some dirt on it, and hide it, cover it up. And the little boy looked at the little girl and said, You don't tell him I won't tell, okay? But he had done it. It wasn't her, but he had done it. You don't tell grandma, I won't tell grandma either. And so they go back to the house, and the grandma tells the little girl, Can you please come help me and set the table for lunch? And the little girl looked at his, her brother and said, you better set the table, I'm going to tell Grandma. <laughs> and the little boy said, Grandma, I'll set the table for her. And so he goes and sets the table. And after lunch, little girl, can you come wash the dishes, please? And she says, remember the duck. And he says, I'll wash the dishes, Grandma, don't worry. And this happened for several days. Little girl, now you sweep the floor. Remember the duck. I'll sweep the floor. And this went on for several days like that. And finally, the little boy couldn't stand it anymore. He went to his grandma and said, I have something I need to tell you. He said, uh, 
we're down at the pond the other day, and I was throwing stones, and I happened to hit a duck, and it killed the duck. And Grandma said, you know, I was looking out the window, and I saw it happen. And I was just waiting to see how long you're going to let your little sister boss you around until you came and told me. And so uh, he went outside to play, feeling much, much better. But come lunchtime, Grandma says, little girl, can you please come set the table? And she said, remember the duck. And he says, go ahead and tell her. She already knows. <laughs> and that was the end of it. And it stopped it. See, we need to learn that. What he did was the right thing to do, but he could have done a lot earlier, too. He washed a lot of dishes and swept the floor a lot of times until he got to clean that. And uh, the well had a cabinet, and the boy had a secret. And both of them can be taken care of the same way, right? You take the cat out of the well. You get the secret out of your heart. You talk to somebody else, and that's what helps heal the problem. Sometimes we can go to our moms and dads and say, Dad, I heard an awful word. Can you please uh, pray for me so I can forget it? Or we can say, Mom, I saw something I shouldn't have seen. Can you, can you pray for me that I'll forget it? And we can talk to them and we can, uh, we can take these things out of our hearts. They don't have to affect us in a bad way. And then we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. And we can be free people to learn to live like that. So that's what I want to tell you. Man. Thank you for coming up here listen to those two stories, all right? So y'all can go back and I'll talk to your parents now for a while. Well, your children are very much like you. They're very attentive. So I appreciate that. I want to welcome you all here again this evening, especially some visitors, people we haven't seen before, a couple of people from my home area. My son is here. He wasn't sure he was going to make it later in the weekend, so he came tonight. Appreciate that effort. And uh, thank you, whoever it was that left a little gift in my car last night. It was beautiful. It looks delicious. Looking forward to enjoying that. And we're here tonight again to worship, to think, and to uh, again examine not only what the kingdom of God is like, but our place in it and what God expects of us in it. And so one thing we spoke of this week was the importance of God's kingdom and how it exists. And one thing to be aware of, we need to remember this often, that here in this earth, this kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. And so being a kingdom of the heart, our hearts belong to us. We need to take ownership of what goes on there, and we're responsible for these things. And there's certain realities that we as God's people must keep in mind and keep up to date with. And, uh, and we own these things. Nobody else can do certain things for us that we alone must do for ourselves when it comes to my place in the kingdom of God and what, what matters to him. And we might get everything else in right, life right, but if we get this subject wrong, we're wrong. And so we need to get this part right. Now this children's class that I just shared this evening was not just for children. It was for all of us, and uh, there's truth there. And when God looks at a man's life, he doesn't first go looking at the pipes and looking at the, the cistern and looking at the faucet. God looks at the well and what's going on in the well. And when God says that a man is cleansed, it doesn't just mean that he washed the faucet or cleaned the pipes. He means that the well got taken care of. Now, sometimes when a person comes to the Lord and 
you know, gets his life cleaned up. Sometimes you still let the water run for a while to get this stuff out. There's habits formed, there's things there that just need time to get flushed away. And it takes time to make a total re renewal in a person's life, but, but when the well is taken care of, the rest begins to follow suit. And so I want to remind us tonight of a fact that we all know, but we maybe don't think about it as we should. And the fact is that each of us lives, in a sense, two lives, and they're not always the same thing. We have a life that everybody else sees, and a life that only me and God know about, the inner life, the life inside that only God sees and I know about. And if we fail to guard it, if we fail to take care of it and do it right, if we fail to nourish it, then everything else uh, turns sour. Everything, nothing else matters as much. And I just want to invite us tonight to examine that part of our life that God inspects, the inner life, the hidden part. And God's concern for that part of us is twofold. And one of the concerns God has is the very verse I read here in children's class, um, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it cometh or are the issues of life. And, and God, Jesus said it, man's heart is like a well. And so the things that we draw from our life and from our words and our actions are rooted there. They take, they take initiative and, and are influenced by what's inside. And if we want to serve God freely and fully, we need to make sure that source is cleansed and doing well. And because that instructs and flavors the lives. That's the first responsibility is to keep the cats out and keep the, the filth out and keep the sin out and keep things out that would affect us in a negative way. But the second thing that God is concerned about, we find in Ephesians 3, uh, 14 through 19. I'll read a few of those verses. Ephesians 3, 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. That's the second part. Not only to keep it clean, but also to be strengthened with his might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and so on. And there's many rich things there, but the point was, our second responsibility is simply putting ourselves in the way of God's blessing, in the way of God's filling and God's strengthening, and making sure we're availing ourselves of that input of his influence into our life. That's the second great responsibility we have, that the Spirit would have free access to us, that Christ might live in us, that that the Spirit might fill us fully, that His Word would dwell there. And so that whatever the flow is that comes out of our life would be a pure flow, a spiritual flow, a, a God-influenced uh, outcome, and something that can give life to the world around us. So the message tonight, I've entitled it, Maintaining the Inner Life. I'd like to begin with two illustrations from Scripture to try to illustrate what this means and some things about it that we can learn from. And the first example is in Matthew 25, Jesus is telling several parables in this chapter about the importance of certain things and getting ready for the coming of the Lord. And so this is one of them. In, in chapter 25, verse 1, we have the parable of the ten virgins. And as we read it, I want you to think about the striking similarities between all ten before you start thinking about the differences between the five and the five. Uh, 
think about that and how far into the parable we get before we really, really see any difference at all between these two groups of people. So we'll read in uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. I don't know if you could see that oil or not, but if they had their lamp with the attached canister for fuel, you could not see from the outside necessarily if there was fuel in it or not. But, so we're here in verse 4 or 5. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there, not be, there be not enough for us and you. But go you rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they came, went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So here is a parable that begins by showing the, the similarities and the sameness of the whole group and then the great gulf between them at the end. And if we could have looked on these young ladies walking down the street getting ready for this bridegroom to come, from a distance, you would have noticed much more how alike they all were than how different they all were. They all were virgins, it said. Maybe it means they all had a high moral standard. Maybe it means they all had a, uh, a professed a godly life. They looked the same on the outside. The same appearance of sanctity and chastity and purity were there. They all had the same expectation. If you could have asked any one of the ten what they were there for, what they were hoping for, who they expected to meet, where they expected to go, all of them would have given the very same answer. Well, we're here to meet the bridegroom. We're going to the wedding. We all expect by the end of this night to be celebrating together. That's what they were there for. They all had a lamp. Maybe the lamp was all the same model. Maybe it was the same color. I don't know. It was all a lamp, an ability to make a light carry around. Uh, maybe that's a symbol of what they meant out there. And they all went to sleep. The wise with the foolish sat down and went to sleep. And they all woke up. The foolish and the wise woke up together. And they all trimmed their lamps. All of them picked up their lamp and got it ready because the bridegroom is coming. They can see him down there on the street. And only at that point do we begin to notice that there is a big difference between the ones and the other. Uh, some had light, some had none. Some had oil, some were empty. Some were filled up, some were dry. And light always requires a source. You can't have light without fuel. And that was a critical moment when they needed it the most and some had it and some didn't. And someone pointed out that maybe, maybe there was a time when all ten were ready. Maybe there was a time when they all had some oil there and just, uh, but as the hours went on and as they waited for the coming and as midnight came closer, um, maybe it went out. You know, some people are sort of like that. Some people have walked with the Lord for many years, and uh, 
You know, some people, when they turn away from the Lord, it's a drastic thing. Uh, I know when, by serving Guatemala, maybe some of you in other places, that there's some very honest people about their spiritual life. If, if a lady does not feel like she's right with the Lord, the first thing she'll do is pull her veil off. Just to assemble to everybody, I'm not doing well. But we, we do it a little differently, don't we? There are some people that make a drastic shift from serving the Lord to just serving the world with all their heart. And some, over time, just sort of die inside, but everything about them sort of just stays the same. It's their habit, it's their life, it's their style, and they don't really show you that they're much different, except maybe some subtle ways, but the dying is happening inside, not out where everybody can see it. And the challenge for me is simply to not let the passing of time and the pressures of life starve the soul. We, we need to be aware of that and careful of that. There's a couple of spiritual realities that I find in this passage that are, would be good to point out. Uh, first of all is, is a very simple one. When oil was needed, oil was not shared from one virgin to the other virgin. Uh, when the five that didn't have it asked if they could borrow some from the five that did, they said, no, we can't give it to you. Maybe we won't have enough. They said, go down the street. There's a place that's open 24-7. Go buy it there and come back with it quick. Maybe you'll get back in time. And isn't that true of the Christian life, that the spirit of grace that only God can give, we do not hand it back and forth to each other. Uh, it's something we can only receive from one source. And if, if you're struggling with your spiritual vitality, please don't come to me and say, can I, can I share some? I'm just going to tell you honestly, I barely have enough for what I need. Please don't come asking for me. I'm, you go to your closet. You get it there. You can find it. Get on your knees and get it. And no matter how spirit-filled one is, the best you can do for another is lead him or point him or encourage him to Jesus Christ. There is no other source. And so we don't, we don't give this back and forth. We, we simply encourage each other to go find it with the Lord through a relationship with him. That's where we get it. We must get this oil while there's time to get it. This isn't done at the last minute. It's found in a daily walk, not a desperate rush. It's found in regular communion with God, not a, not a uh, last minute panic. And so we need to make sure we're prepared in time, not waiting for a deathbed experience or waiting till we, we hear the first two seconds of trumpet to sound. We're, we're ready all the time. We're walking with the Lord all the time. I pray that's how our life would go. We need to take personal inventory of this because when the bridegroom comes, this matters. The second thing that I'd like to point out here is that, that it's never enough to walk in the light of another person. And Jesus doesn't offer us a dipstick to check how much oil I've got, how much life there is. Is it up to the, the minimum necessary mark or how is it doing? The only way... To tell if there's oil in the lamp as if the lamp is burning. I guess. I don't know of another way to check. And is there evidence? Is there a testimony? Is there evidence that, that Christ is in me and I am in him and the Spirit is working my life? Now, when I lived in Sansur, we would have some men's meetings sometimes up at the church up the hill. And uh, after our meeting, it would be dark outside. And so the men would go out of the chapel and they'd all have their flashlight. And 
they're not quite like us Americans. If we're walking around with flashlights, everybody has their flashlight on. We don't care about batteries. We shine our lights everywhere. But they're a little more conservative in the use of their batteries. So if he's got his on, why should I waste my batteries? I'm not going to turn mine on if his is on. Sometimes they'll flash the light, you know, 20 feet ahead and, and then turn it off and walk as far as they remember and then turn it back on again to try to save their batteries. And that's a good thing if you're saving batteries. But it's not a good thing in this context. It was not enough for the five that didn't have a light to sidle up to one that did and sort of go in with them. Each was supposed to have their own. It's not enough to walk with other people that have light. Maybe in a congregation it's easy to fake it sometimes. If I sit beside a spiritual person, if I you know, say amen at the right times, if I, um, it can feel like I'm doing well. You know, the best way to tell if there's oil in the lamp is not in the midst of the light as much as it is in the midst of the darkness. And it's when I'm by myself in a dark place. Is there a spark there? Is there a witness there? Am I quiet? Do I have something to offer? Am I a child of the king when there's no other children of the king around? And am I living like that? Because when the bridegroom comes, he wants to see personal evidence in every life that he has been at work, his spirit is there, and there is blood on the doorpost, as it were, fruit on the branch, oil on the lamb, evidence of the image of God being built in our life. And this conclusion is fairly sad. The bridegroom said, who are you? I never knew you. That's a sobering thought, that as much as Christ loves his body and loves his church and encourages brotherhood and encourages us to, to do church well, but when in the final accounting, it's not going to be about me and my church as much as it is about me and my judge. That's in the final accounting, that's what's going to matter. And these ladies were not dealt with as a group. They were dealt with as individuals in their coming. And they had no excuse. They couldn't say, I have a lamp. They couldn't say, I, had a vir I was a virgin. They couldn't say, I was waiting for you for four hours. What mattered was they weren't ready. And the difference here between the inner life and the outer life to me is very stark and very clear. The outer life is simply what everybody else could see. The inner life was what nobody could see. Now I'd like to just interject this, that in our conservative churches, we believe in the value of outward expression. We believe that. We believe that, that truth must be applied and lived out. Now, we have certain expectations of each other. We have certain standards. We have certain um, agreements we abide by. I know there are those who feel like these things stifle spiritual life. And I would just like to say that I think that, that practical application is, is very accommodating and, and very much meshes with true spiritual life. One does not... Uh, does not exclude the other. At the same time, these things that we have chosen to do may sometimes become a camouflage for an inner laxity and an inner lack of concern about my spiritual walk. That also is true. If we're not careful, that can exist. And it would be too bad to take shortcuts and let the inner man die while the outward just looks as, as it always did. The point of the parable, I believe, is Jesus' opinion about two groups of people, those that are concerned 
about truth in the inward parts and those that only care about what other people see and notice about me. Because in the end, the invisible realities of a man will be laid bare. So let's go to uh, Psalm 1. There's another example there I'd like to just point out quickly. Psalm 1, the first three verses. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So David is asking, if God really wants to bless a person, who does he look for, and who does he bless? Well, it mentions a couple things here, and both of them line up very well with the first two things I mentioned this evening, the need to keep the well clean, and also feed and nourish the inner man, and put ourselves in the way of blessing, blessing of the Lord. But the first one is, the man that God chooses to bless is one that keeps the cats out of the well, as it were. He guards himself from sin. He does not take ungodly advice. He doesn't flirt with temptation. He doesn't loiter around sin. He, he knows that decisions about sin are constant things and that sins happen in the mind before they happen in action. And so when he's by himself or when he's on a trip or when he's wherever he is, he knows that if he doesn't take care of this matter, we're all seconds away from thinking wrong thoughts or doing wrong things if we begin to let our mind go where it shouldn't go Plan what it shouldn't plan. So choices about sin are part of the inner man long before they become part of the outward expression. David says a man is blessed that guards both his heart and his actions. And the second thing it mentions here, the man is blessed who delights to meditate upon the Lord. Now, this is a person that reads the word of God. Nobody makes him, but he does it because he wants to. Here's a person who meditates. In the privacy of his mind, his heart, his thoughts are drawn toward the Lord. Here's a man who has a prayer life. He has an inner, private place to meet with God. Now, think about it. Somebody else can make you read your Bible, but nobody can make you meditate. Because meditation is done on the inside. That's up to you. Other people can say, let's kneel for prayer, and you kneel because you'd be embarrassed not to, but nobody can make you pray because prayer is done on the inside. It's, it's our direction of our hearts, direction of our thoughts. And the choice to maintain this inner life is always a personal choice. It's not one that somebody else can tell me I must do or force it to happen. It's something I choose to do. And if I don't choose to do it, it's not going to happen. And then it says, if you are a man like this, or a woman like this, you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, I had this illustrated to me many times as I walked to church in Pasaco. We lived in a town about a mile and a half from church, and we'd go down across a little creek and up the hill on the other side. And in the dry season, which lasted from about October to May, with maybe a sprinkle in February, things just got drier and drier and drier, until by March and April, things were toasted, brown and Fires burning and ashes in the air. But down by that creek, which did sort of dry up over the dry season, was a tree. I think it was a seva or some kind of a big tree. And it has its roots right down by the edge of the water. And you could always count on it when you walked by that tree. There was living green among all the brown around it. 
because it had its roots there. And, and it was always an example to me of this verse. That's what a tree like that looks like, except it wasn't a fruit tree. But when you see a tree, and when you draw a picture of a tree in school, if that's what you do, you're only drawing half the, half the picture. I don't know of anybody except a biologist that thinks about drawing a tree above the ground and also drawing a tree below the ground. But what's below the ground is probably just as or more important than what's above the ground. We just don't think about it that way. Some trees have the same extension of roots below the surface as they do branches above the surface. And if it wasn't like that, it wouldn't live. And what other people see of your life is like what we see above the ground. Uh, there's, there's only half the reality, maybe the second half at that. They don't see your inner maintenance. They don't see your mind, your desire. They don't see how honest you're being with God. They don't see your devotional life. They don't see what's on your conscience. But what happens at the roots quickly affects the branches. I had a little cherry tree last summer. I think we had planted it a year before. And it was doing beautifully. Nice little tree. It had three cherries on it. Just, but about a week after I picked those cherries, the whole thing just whoosh, turned brown and dried up within a, within a week. It was, it was done. I guess I, shouldn't have, I should have watered. I don't, know what, I don't know what was wrong, but it just died real quick. And that was final evidence that something down below wasn't working right. And that's sort of how it is in our life. People can't really see your inner life, but they can sure begin to see the results of what's happening there over time. And the water that used to come out pure now may be coming out tainted. The tree that was once healthy is now a bit weak and diseased. And it starts showing up. And you try to do what everybody else expects, and you try to uh, not let it show. You try to act right. But in your speech, and in your devotional, and in your comments, and in your attitudes, something starts to show that something is changing down there inside. And discerning people quickly pick up that people whose lives evidence that it's, just a, it's, a, it's pointing to a dying at the roots. There's something down in there that's not right. It needs to be taken care of. I would like to speak specifically to several ways that we can uh, invest in the health of the inner man. Things that we can do on purpose and to be aware of that I believe would help. And the first thing on my list this evening is, if you want health in the inner man, you must keep a pure and clean conscience. First uh, Timothy 1.19 says, Holding faith in a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith made shipwreck. Now the conscience, to me, is the inner nudging of God in the heart and the mind, both alerting us that something is wrong and maybe nudging us to do something that's right. And we sense that. I hope we all have a conscience that works enough to sense the nudges of the Lord and he wants to speak to us. And the important thing to remember about our conscience is very simple. Your conscience, only two people know about it. Only you and only the Lord. And the important thing about obeying your conscience is it's evidence that you're being serious with the Lord when you obey it because there's nobody else that's going to make you obey that conscience. 
It's, it's simply between you and him. That's why the conscience is so important. And to me, there's two areas where this becomes very important. And uh, one has very much to do with what we just talked about here in Sunday school in the children's class. If you want a clear conscience, we must confess the sins that bother it, that taint it, that have come into our life, and we haven't dealt with them the way we should, and so we need to confess that and get rid of it. David is a prime example of that. David was a, a good king for the most part, but he was tempted when he saw his neighbor, wa neighbor's wife. He, he could have done something different. He could have called his accountability partner. He could have said, please pray for me. I, you know, he could have got this taken care of right up front. Never would have happened. But he didn't take steps to do that, and so it festered. He thought about it, and thoughts became intentions, and intentions became actions. And David sinned. And then after that, he took steps to hide it. He tried to bring Uriah home. He had him killed. He married Bathsheba to try to cover his sin. And besides the fact that he had this premature child, it seemed to be covered fairly well. And David was a false man at that point. You see, his outer life was one thing, but what he was hiding inside was different. And, and, and that's even more awful still, to have this happen, but build such a wall around that Nobody's going to find out. I, I'm not going to let this come out. I've covered it up. I'm good. And we're going to live with this. And all the while, he was standing before his people. He was leading people in worship. He was passing judgment on other people's sins. And all the time, the well of his own life was contaminated. and It was false inside. And doing the best to hide it. And his outer life was different than his inner life. He was smiling at people while covering the secret. It was business as usual while covering the secret inside. And all this time, however many months that was, God was looking at the inner man of David, not as much the outer. Now David did not repent until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan came, and it wasn't until Nathan said, you are the man, that David said, oh my word, you're right. I'm the man. And I confess that uh, I often have doubts about people that don't confess sin until they're confronted and backed in a corner. And sometimes that happens. You talk to someone, you have evidence, they've, they've denied it, and when they finally have no more wiggle room, they say, yes, yes, I'm sorry, that was me. And then next week, you confront them with something else, and they say, oh, yes, I, I did that too. And there's never a voluntary confession. That bothers me when that happens. Things done voluntarily are always worth more. But in this case... I believe that David was sincere because he wrote Psalm 51 afterwards in confession, and he says a couple of very key things. In verse 8 it says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. See, he knew what a broken conscience felt like. And he's saying, Lord, it's like broken bones in there. Let's, can you heal it? In verse 6 he said, What God really wants, he said, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And that is so key. We, we need to desire that, truth in the inward parts. Truth in a sense that what's out there is the same as what's in here, and, and there's no disconnect. There's no falseness about who I am as a person. And here's a principle we can hold to. Godliness thrives in transparency, and sin thrives in secret. And if you find yourself covering something and hiding something, it likely should not be there, and we need to take it seriously. How much different this young man that I knew in Pasaco years ago was than King David? He was probably 13 years old. He just gone through instruction class. Baptism was a week away. And I asked him, so 
Is there anything left you feel like you need to take care of or do or before you uh, are baptized next week? And he thought a little bit and said, you know, there is something. He said, I stole an apple down in the store in town, and I think I need to go take care of that. I didn't know it. His dad didn't know it. The storekeeper didn't know it. Only two people that knew it was him and God. And he was not content to go through with the next steps of his spiritual life without taking care of that. See, that speaks of sincerity. When a person obeys his conscience, it's not because somebody else made him do it. He's doing it because he knows the Lord wants him to do it. And that's huge. The second way to keep a pure conscience is this. Uh, Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This has the idea of an umpire. When a player steps on the foul line, the whistle blows. When a player holds another player or, or you know, walks in basketball or something, the whistle blows. Something's wrong, you've got to go back and do it again. You've got to fix it. But here's the problem in our spiritual life. Isn't it true that so often we get so used to being out of bounds, we just don't hear it anymore? The line is there. We walked across back and forth so often that we just don't recognize anymore where the boundaries are. And then we look at life that way, and we're, you know, we want to serve the Lord. We want to do the best we can, but we're confused. We, we don't know what God expects anymore and what he doesn't. We're not sure where the lines are for our lives anymore because we've crossed them so much. The inner man can only do well when it knows that its life is within the boundaries God has for it. And that's where peace comes, and that's where a relationship with him comes. And if you really want to clean up the inner life, try this. Pray this prayer. Lord, I am so sick of being confused. Will you please show me where the boundaries are? And then you take everything you own and take stock of every area of your life, and first of all, ask yourself this question. Do I own anything? Do I do anything? Am I involved in anything that is outside the boundaries that have already been set for me? If you're a child at home, your parents have expectations. If you're a member of a congregation, your church has expectations. Those are the easy ones. Those lines are you know, drawn for us. Now, maybe we help draw them, and maybe we should, uh, maybe we should uh, live up to what we expect of other people. And so that's the first question. And then bring yourselves inside those lines. Say, if that's what's expected, that's where I'll be. That's number one. And then take everything that's left and get on your knees before the Lord and make three piles of it. And maybe you'll pick up a, a Maranatha CD or maybe a Hope Singer CD and think, which pile does this belong on? Well, I know where this comes from. I know what this does. This goes on the pile of the things I know are right before the Lord. And then maybe you'll pick up one that who knows where it comes from, and you know in your heart that the impact and influence of this thing is not godly. And so you're going to put it on this pile. You know this is not right before the Lord. And maybe there's a few things that you just aren't sure about. And so you make this third pile of things that, you know, aren't bad in themselves, you think, but maybe aren't the best best. Maybe there's better things. And you put them away for a month and bring them back out and pray over them again. And say, Lord, now, now what does it feel like? You see... Evil seems better if we're used to it. But when we put it away for a while and then bring it back out after walking with the Lord as we should, they look different. They do look different. If you can't thank the Lord honestly for something in your life, maybe you ought to be really questioning it and its influence in my life.
if you really want spiritual health, make sure you're inside the boundaries that God wants for your life. Another area besides the conscience that I think I'll, I'll mention, lest we think that maintaining your inner life is all about me and God, me and Jesus, my honesty inside, my integrity. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8.21, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And God is not only concerned about how we live before him, he's concerned about how we live before one another. It points that out here. And 1 John points this out. How I live with my brethren is an influencer on the health of my inner life. In fact, let's just read those couple of verses. In 1 John 1, we all know verse 9. We're going to read verses 5 through 7. 1 John 1, verse 5. This then is the message which ye have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. There's two words there. There's light and there's darkness. There's false, which means to shine or make manifest, and there is skotos, which is shadiness and obscurity. And we can choose to live one or the other. To live in life basically means to walk in plain sight, to, uh, to be open about my experience, to invite other people into my life, to be in the light. To live in darkness would be to camouflage my goings, to keep others at a distance, to keep myself close, and put up walls that people can only come so close. And just let people be in the dark about who I am as a person. You see, in this whole relationship between the outer life and the inner life, what we are on the outside is supposed to be a window to the heart. That's what it's meant to be. But the human tendency is to paint the windows, thicken the curtains, lock the front door, and paint the house a beautiful color and pay much attention to landscaping out front. Isn't that the human tendency? The effect is beautiful, but what's inside is secret. And John said, if we walk in the light, which means living in the light, openness, transparency, honesty about life in general and experience, two things happen. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, and we have fellowship one with another. True fellowship cannot exist with locked front doors and painted front windows it doesn't exist in the landscaping. It exists in the relationship of a spiritual life with brothers and sisters of like faith. Now, uh, may I confess as one of us tonight that one of our conservative tendencies has been to put a lot of emphasis on the landscaping and uh, a little, maybe less on the access to the house. And I believe we need to combat that. And the brotherhood needs to know that that anyone can come to me and ask any question, and I will give them an honest answer. That just needs to be our attitude toward each other. Uh, anybody can knock on the door of my life at any time, and I'll open the door. Uh, I won't hide behind who you think I am. I would rather you know who I really am. And so we answer each other. We, I guess we're a little bit like onions. We take the skin off in the first layer, and then it, it doesn't matter how comfortable we are with each other. And one thing that makes a big difference is 
as a brotherhood, do we know that this is a safe place to do it? Because when that doesn't exist, that makes walls go up. We need to make sure we have that attitude and that environment. But there's nothing like shining a light into a long, dark place to bring health and vitality to the inner man. That helps. And this goes right along with it. If we want a healthy inner life, we have to fear God more than we fear people. Um, the Pharisees went down the wrong road on this one. It said they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. It says they lived to be seen of men and all they did. And they feared men so much that some believed and wouldn't confess him. They were scared of each other. Some believed, but they were scared of them. The Pharisees were scared of Jesus. The Pharisees were scared of the people. The Pharisees tried to make the, the people scared of them so they wouldn't believe in Jesus. There's a whole fear thing, fear of what men think and what men do. And the end result of hypocrisy is that environment. And so we need to be careful about that. A spiritual environment that emphasizes fear in favor of men is one that will be death to the inner life. It tends to be that way. And this last one. If we want a healthy inner life, we must maintain the spiritual disciplines that God expects us to. Jesus was hard on the Pharisees for emphasizing their outer things and minimizing the inner things, inward things. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke about this in Matthew. We'll read a couple of these passages yet before we draw this to a close. But in Matthew chapter 6, here's one, the first couple of verses. Take heed, he says, that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thy alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now it is good to sacrifice and invest in the kingdom of God, but there's two ways to do it. We can do it like the Pharisees did it, and we can make our deeds known to men by ringing a bell or by announcing to the congregation or by holding up our offering for all men to see or by mentioning the people I've, you know. And so Jesus says, when we do good, do good, but do it for your Father in heaven. He is the one that matters most, and we don't do it for each other. Jesus said, if you do it for the Father, that's enough. In prayer, he says the same, very similar thing, Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand praying in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. And then he says, go into your closet. When you shut the door, pray to your father in secret. We've read that last night, or at least referred to it. And when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they should be heard for their much speaking. So prayers for God is not for men. We can be blessed by hearing each other pray. We can tell what's on each other's hearts by what they pray about. We encourage each other that way, but... In itself, prayers for God. We don't do it to be seen of men. I don't know if you catch yourself doing what I've caught myself doing already. Easier to make long prayers in public and short snatches in private because I'm so busy. Or if you ever caught yourself coming to prayer meeting and giving prayer requests for things you haven't prayed yourself about for a month just because you know, we need to give something for a prayer request. And Jesus said, pray that the Lord would hear and pray for his 
his glory. We talked about prayer last night. There's not much need to talk more about it. But the position of prayer is much less important than the attitude of prayer. Uh, so make sure we're doing it for real. We need to mean it. Jesus talks here about vain repetitions. And vain repetition is simply wordiness, extra stuff added in to make it sound like a prayer, or maybe repeating ourselves or something. I don't know, maybe our vain repetitions mean about as much to God as the Hail Mary Mother of God does from other congregations. I, I'm not sure. But we need to mean what we pray. If we mean what we pray, let's pray it. But let's be careful about, about that point. We must do it for the Lord, not for other people. And the same thing in fasting. We won't read that passage, but Jesus said, don't show yourself off when you fast. Do it, but do it for the Lord. And sometimes we're tempted to not fast because, oh, maybe somebody will find out. We shouldn't avoid it just because of that, but we should also be careful not to do it for the sake of being noticed. And this goes for so many things in the spiritual life. But what does it mean there? When Jesus said, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What does that mean? To me, it simply means you'll be like a tree with its roots by the river of water, and on the branches will be fruit and life and greenery. They can't see the roots, but they'll see the results. To me, it means there'll be oil in the lamp so there can be a flame on the wick. They can't see the oil, but they can see the, see the shining, see the light. It's like saying there'll be fruit on the branches because there's a connection with the vine. It's that relationship. And God sees in secret and he blesses your life in, in public ways, not because you choose it, it's because you're focusing on something else. You're not focusing on the fruit. You're not focusing on the light. You're just making sure that your roots are in the right place. There's oil inside. There's a relationship there that keeps this thing going. And that's how it's supposed to work. So we're concerned tonight about the inner life. And I'll share with you my greatest concern about this topic. The greatest concern I have is about my inner life and your inner life is what happens when we die. And I believe that when we die, the facade that I built, the picture I drew, the uh, things that other people saw, the impressions I gave that were maybe not true, those are all gonna be swept away and the thing that God saw, the inner reality of who I really am, that's going to become my eternal identity. And that's going to be who I am for all of eternity. I will never again be what other people thought I was. I will always be what God knew I was. Jesus said to the Laodicean church, You say you're rich and increased with goods. And knowest not that you're wretched and poor and blind and naked. They didn't know that, but God sure knew it. Jesus wants truth in the inward parts. You know, there's things we can do, and we can act on this. If we're blind and naked and wretched, and we know it, we can do something about that. If there's no oil in our lamps, we can go to places to get that. It's available. If our, if our leaves are drying out, and our roots are drying out, we know we can push them deeper. We can find the source, and we can fix that problem. But we'll never seek spiritual growth by adorning the branches or trimming the wick. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
You know all things. And I just pray you examine our hearts tonight because you know realities about us that no one else knows. And maybe we don't even know, but I pray you to reveal to us if there is a deficiency, if there is a lifelessness, a deadness, a coldness that you would like to cure and bring uh, resolution and bring health to. We pray that you would work that among us tonight and speak to us personally tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to give the invitation tonight, and this is simply the question. If there's a cat in the well, if there's dryness at the roots, if, if you're an empty vessel with a smoking wick, and you know there's certain specific steps God is asking you to take to fix that problem so your inner man can become a healthy person, that's the invitation. And if you sense that need for renewal and vitality, I would just invite you to, uh, maybe we can sing a song together. I think um, song number 79 is, Lord, Thou hast searched and seen me through. Maybe we can sing that song together, our song to get that ready. And uh, let's put it this way. We'll give the invitation two ways. If you sense that there is a, a sin problem in your life that you know you cannot prosper without taking care of a guilty conscience, now you're going to come forward. We'll pray with you and maybe counsel with you. If you're sensing tonight there's just a, a spiritual dryness and you're committing to, to take care of roots and take care of the things that we've talked about, maybe other things that, that God wants you to do to deepen and strengthen your spiritual life, just stand to your feet where you're at tonight as we sing and acknowledge that before the rest, and we can pray for you also. But let's sing, and that's the invitation. Go ahead. <laughs>